Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. I'm pointing them to the moon. But the world... This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 519. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, I tell you what, my... Since the last recording, man, have I had man flu. Ah, it's still here. And unreal. Didn't know if I was batting or balling. I think I'm coming out of it now. But, oh, I didn't know where I was, man. One day, 17 hours I was asleep. 17 hours? It's all on me Fitbit recorded. Even last night was, I mean, normally I'm kind of a seven-hour guy. Even last night was 10 hours. Man, wipe the floor with us. And funny enough, it, special day today because I'm getting get round with though. It's Amy's 100th episode, and we've got 100th today. And I interviewed Amy last week, and I didn't know. Man, I got through that, and I just crawled upstairs to bed, and that was it. I haven't been down since. So today is, like I say, a special show because it, it, we are celebrating Amy's 100th episode of Starship Sofa. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is a main fiction. We have Elegy for a Young Elk by Hanu Rajani, which is narrated by the fantastic Mr. Al Barkley. Then, like I say, we have Amy H. Sturgis with Looking Back at Genre History, show 100. And the funny thing, Amy, I haven't even had a chance to listen to it, man. Do you know what I mean? I don't even know what you're going to say. You might be calling us worse than muck. But what we did last week, 
before the kind of the darkness descended on us, and I didn't know, you know, the eternal darkness, the fevers. <gasps> but before the fevers and the hallucinations came, I interviewed Amy just for like a celebration. Now we've got that up on Patreon, and all you need is one dollar to come and listen to that, and you get into the kind of Discord and everything like that. If you want to listen to, you know, Amy, just to find out a little bit more about her, do you know what I mean? And I wanted to dig into her childhood and I wanted to kind of dig in that, but I was just not fire. you know what I mean? I was, because I, I mentioned to Amy the day before, I says, Amy, I'm going to ask you, you know, who was the first, you know, who was the first person you kissed? <laughs> All them kind of questions and, you know what I mean? And take the mick out of our mother because, you know, I'm a mother, you know what I mean? They're, they're always like me, mother-in-laws, do you know what I mean? I was going to go on there, but, oh, just, just got, got through it. But anyway, after I've edited it all down, cut the sniffling out, I still left little bits in and everything. But it's on Patreon. So if you were interested in, you know, Amy's life, do you know what I mean? What, how she grew up, brothers, sisters, you know, mums, dads, relate right back into history. It's all there. On, and it's a great interview. And everyone that's been listening already on Patreon has just thought it was, it was fantastic. So, and thank you for everyone that kind of joined live. You know what I mean? You, you're witnessing... A remarkable event. Amy on the cusp of a wave there, celebrating 100 shows and me just falling into an abyss. <laughs> so, before Amy's show then, we'll get into the main fiction. Now, folks, long-time listeners might just recognise this story. Oh, what did you think, before we actually get into that, of the Starship Echoes? Did you like that? I've had, some, I've had a couple of emails, you know, since... Since it went out on Friday, and again, apologies if I've not even answered anything, you know, enjoyed it. So, what I'm going to do with that is once a month, you know, unless, you know, it dictates, everyone says, oh, you know, more, more, more. But this story, Hanu Rajiani, Elegy for a Young Elk, just want to say, reprinted with kind permission from the author and the Orion, Orion Publishing Group, London. It was originally published in Subterranean, reprinted in Invisible Planets. Now, some may, and you, you could actually call this, you know, a Starship Echo, because we've actually played this story in show 199. And if I'd been anywhere kind of near a decent kind of production manager, host, whatever, and not in the depths of despair, I might have noticed Jeremy was going to play Hanu, and I, was, I should have said, well, oh, we've done that. But just things have just been unreal for us this last kind of, I reckon two weeks coming up there now so let's call this a special Starship Echoes and I'm, I'm guessing quite a few years haven't listened to this story anyways do you know what I mean it's you kind of you, you come into Starships over you, you gobble up and then you move on and you know it's only the kind of really long time kind of hard steers that kind of might remember this from you know way back when and it, it was you know when we kind of played it it was 29th of July 2011, so it's a long time ago, do you know what I mean? So anyway, what I'll do is I'll give you a little kind of heads up, because all the, the bios change of Hanau's as well. Like I say, it was originally published in Subterranean and reprinted in Invisible Planets. Hanau was born in Finland. At the age of eight, he approached the European Space Agency with a fusion-powered spaceship design, which was received with a polite thank you note. 
Hanau studied mathematics and theoretical physics at the University of Ulu, is it? And Cambridge, and holds a PhD in string theory from the University of Edinburgh. He co-founded a mathematics consultancy whose clients include UK Ministry of Defence. Currently, he works as a co-founder for Helix Nano, a synthetic biology startup. Hanau is the author of four novels, including The Quantum Thief. Translated into more than 20 languages and the forthcoming Summerland, which is due out in July 2018, and several short stories. He lives in San Francisco Bay Area. Now, this time around, the story is narrated by Al Barkley. Al has worked extensively over 15 years, most notably playing opposite James McAvoy and Michael Sheen and Stephen Fry's Bright Young Things, and with David Thewlis in Luke Besson's The Lady. He will be in the West End at the Arts Theatre this December playing Scrooge. Oh, he's done it, he's finished. Al, I hope it went all right, lad. He once drank two bottles of wine. No, not wine. He once drank two bottles of gin with Peter O'Toole. That's it there. That I've read Al's bio a couple of times, and that always just, you know what I mean? Two bottles of gin, repeat to a tool, man. That's it, you've, you've achieved, Al. That's it, you've achieved life's greatness. Do you know what I mean? It, it will never get better than them few hours. And has danced the night away in Camden with Amy Winehouse. Not even that comes close to drinking gin with Peter O'Toole. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Elegy for a Young Elk by Hanu Rayanimi The night after Kassonen shot the young elk, he tried to write a poem by the campfire. It was late April, and there was still snow on the ground. He had already taken to sitting outside in the evening, on a log by the fire, in the small clearing where his cabin stood. Otso was more comfortable outside, and he preferred the bear's company to being alone. It snored loudly atop its pile of fir branches, a wet smell that had traces of elk shit drifted from its drying fur. He dug a soft-covered notebook and a pencil stub from his pocket. He leafed through it. Most of the pages were empty. Words had become slippery, harder to catch than elk. 
although not this one, careless and young, an old elk would never have led a man and bear so close. He scattered words on the first empty page, gripping the pencil hard. Antlers. Sapphire antlers. No, no, no good. Frozen flames, tree roots, forks, destinies. There had to be words that captured the moment when the crossbow kicked against his shoulder, the meaty sound of the arrow's impact, but it was like trying to catch snowflakes in his palm. He could barely glimpse the crystal structure, and then they melted. He closed the notebook and almost threw it into the fire, but thought better of it and put it back into his pocket. No point in wasting good paper. Besides, his last toilet roll in the outhouse would run out soon. Gosonen is thinking about words again, Otso growled. Gosonen should drink more booze. Don't need words then, just sleep. Gosonen looked at the bear. You think you are smart, huh? He tapped his crossbow. Maybe it's you who should be shooting elk. Otso good at smelling, Gosonen at shooting, both good at drinking. Otso yawned luxuriously, revealing rows of yellow teeth. Then it rolled to its side and let out a satisfied, heavy sigh. Otso will have more booze soon. Maybe the bear was right. Maybe a drink was all he needed. No point in being a poet. They had already written all the poems in the world up there in the sky. They probably had poetry gardens, or places where you could become words. But that was not the point. The words needed to come from him, a dirty, bearded man in the woods whose toilet was a hole in the ground. Bright words from dark matter, that's what poetry was about. When it worked. There were things to do. The squirrels had almost picked the lot the previous night, bloody things. The cellar door needed reinforcing, but that could wait until tomorrow. He was about to open a vodka bottle from Otso's secret stash in the snow when Maria came down from the sky as rain. The rain was sudden and cold, like a bucket of water poured over your head in a sauna, but the droplets did not touch the ground. They floated around Kasonan. As he watched, they changed shape, joined together, and made a woman, spindle-thin bones, mist flesh and muscle. She looked like a glass sculpture. The small breasts were perfect hemispheres, her sex an equilateral silver triangle, but the face was familiar. Small nose and high cheekbones, a sharp-tongued mouth. Maria. Otso was up in an instant by Kasona's side. Bad smell, God smell, it growled. Otso bites. The rain woman looked at it curiously. Otso, Kasona said sternly. He gripped the fur in the bear's rough neck tightly, feeling its huge muscles tense. Otso is Kasonan's friend. Listen to Kasonan. Not time for biting, time for sleeping. Kasonan will speak to God. Then he set the vodka bottle in the snow right under its nose. Otso sniffed the bottle and scraped the half-melted snow with its forepaw. Otso goes, it finally said. Kosonan shouts if the god bites. Then Otso comes. It picked up the bottle in its mouth deftly and loped into the woods with the bear's loose, shuffling gait. Hi, the rain woman said. Hello, Kosonan said carefully. He wondered if she was real. The plague gods were crafty. One of them could have taken Maria's image from his mind... He looked at the unstrung crossbow and tried to judge the odds. A diamond goddess versus an out-of-shape woodland poet. Not good. "'Your dog doesn't like me very much,' the muddier thing said. She sat down on Kasonan's log and swung its shimmering legs in the air back and forth, just like Maria always did in the sauna. It had to be her, Kasonan decided, feeling something jagged in his throat. He coughed. 
bear, not a dog. A dog would have barked. Otso just bites. Nothing personal, that's just his nature. Paranoid and grumpy. Sounds like someone I used to know. I'm not paranoid. Kosonin hunched down and tried to get the fire going again. You learn to be careful in the woods. Malia looked around. I thought we gave you stayers more equipment. It looks a little primitive here. Yeah, we had plenty of gadgets, Kosonin said. But they weren't plague-proof. I had a smart gun before I had this, he tapped his crossbow, but it got infected. I killed it with a big rock and threw it into the swamp. I've got my skis and some tools and these. Kosonin tapped his temple. Has been enough so far. So, cheers. He piled up some kindling under a triangle of small logs, and in a moment the flames sprung up again. Three years had been enough to learn about woodcraft, at least. Maria's skin looked almost human in the soft light of the fire, and he sat back on Otso's fir branches, watching her. For a moment, neither of them spoke. So, how are you these days? he asked, keeping busy. Maria smiled. Your wife grew up. She's a big girl now. You don't want to know how big. So you are not her, then? Who am I talking to? I am her, and I am not her. I'm a partial, but a faithful one. A translation. You wouldn't understand. Kassonen put some snow in a coffee pot to melt. All right, so I'm a caveman, fair enough, but I understand you are here because you want something. So let's get down to business, Parkele, he swore. Maria took a deep breath. We lost something. Something important. Something new. The spark, we called it. It fell into the city. I thought you kept copies of everything. Quantum information. That was a part of the new bit. You can't copy it. Tough shit. A wrinkle appeared between Maria's eyebrows. Kosonin remembered it from a thousand fights they'd had and swallowed. If that's the tone you want to take, fine, she said. I thought you'd be glad to see me. I didn't have to come. They could have sent Mickey Mouse, but I wanted to see you. The big Maria wanted to see you. So you've decided to live your life like this, as the tragic figure haunting the woods. That's fine, but you could at least listen. You owe me that much. Kasonan said nothing. I see, Maria said. You still blame me for Essa. She was right. It had been her who got the first Santa Claus machine. The boy needs the best we can offer, she said. The world is changing. Can't have him being left behind. Let's make him into a little god like the neighbor's kid. I guess I shouldn't be blaming you, Kasona said. You're just a partial. You weren't there. I was there, Maria said quietly. I remember better than you now. I also forget better and forgive. You never could. You just wrote poems. The rest of us moved on and saved the world. Great job, Kasona said. He poked the fire with a stick and a cloud of sparks flew up into the air with the smoke. Maria got up. That's it, she said. I'm leaving. See you in a hundred years. The air grew cold. A halo appeared around her, shimmering in the firelight. Kasonin closed his eyes and squeezed his jaw shut tight. He waited for ten seconds. Then he opened his eyes. Maria was still there, staring at him, helpless. He couldn't help smiling. She could never leave without having the last word. I'm sorry, Kasonin said. It's been a long time. I've been living in the woods with a bear. Doesn't improve one's temper much. I didn't really notice any difference. All right, Kasonin said. 
He tapped the fir branches next to him. Sit down. Let's start over. I'll make some coffee. Mardia sat down, bare shoulder touching his. She felt strangely warm. Warmer than the fire, almost. The firewall won't let us into the city, she said. We don't have anyone human enough, not anymore. There was some talk about making one, but the argument would last a century, she sighed. We like to argue in the sky. Kasona grinned. Well, I bet you fit right in. He checked for the wrinkle before continuing. So you need an errand, boy. We need help. Kasona looked at the fire. The flames were dying now, licking at the blackened wood. There are always new colours in the embers. Or maybe he just always forgot. He touched Maria's hand. It felt like a soap bubble, barely solid. But she didn't pull it away. All right, he said. Just so you know, it's not just for old time's sake. Anything we can give you. I'm cheap, Cassandra said. I just want words. The sun sparkled on the Kantahanki. Snow with a frozen surface, strong enough to carry a man on skis and a bear. Kosonan breathed hard. Even going downhill, keeping pace with Otso, was not easy. But in weather like this, there was something glorious about skiing, sliding over blue shadows of trees almost without friction, the snow hissing underneath. I've sat still too long, he thought. Should have gone somewhere just to go, not because someone asks. In the afternoon, when the sun was already going down, they reached the railroad, a bare gash through the forest, two metal tracks on a bed of gravel. Kasona removed his skis and stuck them in the snow. I'm sorry you can't come along, he told Otso, but the city won't let you in. Otso, not a city bear, the bear said. Otso waits for Kasonan. Kasonan gets Skybug, comes back, then we drink booze. He scratched the rough fur of its neck clumsily. The bear poked Kasonan in the stomach with its nose, so hard that he almost fell. Then it snorted, turned around and shuffled into the woods. Kasonan watched it until it vanished among the snow-covered trees. It took three painful attempts of sticking his fingers down his throat to get the nano-seed Maria gave him to come out. The gagging left a bitter taste in his mouth. Swallowing it had been the only way to protect the delicate thing from the plague. He wiped it in the snow, a transparent bauble the size of a walnut, slippery and warm. It reminded him of the toys you could get from vending machines in supermarkets when he was a child, plastic spheres with something secret inside. He placed it on the rails carefully, wiped the remains of vomit from his lips, and rinsed his mouth with water. Then he looked at it. Maria knew he would never read instruction manuals, so she hadn't given him one. Make me a train, he said. Nothing happened. Maybe it can read my mind, he thought and imagined a train, an old steam train, puffing along. Still nothing. Just a reflection of the darkening sky on a seed's clear surface. She always had to be subtle. Maria could never give a present without thinking about its meaning for days. Standing still, let the spring winter chill through his wolf-pelt coat, and he hopped up and down, rubbing his hands together. With the motion came an idea. He frowned, staring at the seed, and took the notebook from his pocket. Maybe it was time to try out Maria's other gift, or advance payment, however you wanted to look at it. He had barely written the first lines when the words leapt into his mind like animals woken from slumber. He closed the book, cleared his throat, and spoke. These rails were worn thin by wheels that wrote down the name of each passenger in steel 
and miles, he said. It's a good thing the years et our flesh too, made us thin and light, so the rails are strong enough to carry us still to the city in our train of glass and words. Doggerel, he thought, but it didn't matter. The joy of words filled his veins like vodka. Too bad it didn't work. The seed blurred. It exploded into a white-hot sphere. The waste heat washed across Cassonan's face. Glowing tentacles squirmed past him, sucking carbon and metal from the rails and trees. They danced like a welder's electric arc, sketching lights and surfaces in the air. And suddenly, the train was there. It was transparent, with paper-thin walls and delicate wheels, as if it had been blown from glass. A sketch of a cartoon steam engine with a single carriage, with spiderweb-like chairs inside, just the way he'd imagined it. He climbed in, expecting the delicate structure to sway under his weight, but it felt rock-solid. The nano-seed lay on the floor innocently, as if nothing had happened. He picked it up carefully, took it outside, and buried it in the snow, leaving his skis and sticks as markers. Then he picked up his backpack, boarded the train again, and sat down in one of the gossamer seats. Unbidden, the train lurched into motion smoothly. To Cassonin it sounded like the rails beneath were whispering, but he could not hear the words. He watched the darkening forest glide past. The day's journey weighed heavily down on his limbs. The memory of the snow beneath his skis melted together with the train's movement, and soon Cassonin was asleep. When he woke up it was dark. The amber light of the firewall glowed in a horizon like a thundercloud. The train had speeded up. The dark forest outside was a blur, and the whispering of the rails had become a quiet staccato song. Cassonan swallowed as the train covered the remaining distance in a matter of minutes. The firewall grew into a misty dome glowing with yellowish light from within. The city was an indistinct silhouette beneath it. The buildings seemed to be in motion like a giant's shadow puppets. Then it was a flaming curtain directly in front of the train, an impenetrable wall made from twilight and amber crossing the tracks. Cassonan gripped the delicate frame of his seat, knuckles white. Slow down, he shouted, but the train did not hear. It crashed directly into the firewall with a bone-jarring impact. There was a burst of light and then Cassonan was lifted from his seat. It was like drowning except that he was floating in an infinite sea of amber light rather than water. Apart from the light there was just emptiness. His skin tickled. It took him a moment to realise that he was not breathing. And then a stern voice spoke. This is not a place for men, it said. Closed, forbidden, go back. I have a mission, said Kasonan. His voice had no echo in the light. From your makers, they command you to let me in. He closed his eyes and Maria's third gift floated in front of him. Not words, but a number. He'd always been poor at memorising things, but Maria's touch had been a pen with acid ink burning it in his mind. He read off the endless digits one by one. "'You may enter,' said the firewall, "'but only that which is human will leave.' The train and the speed came back sharp and real like a paper cut. The twilight glow of the firewall was still there, but instead of the forest, dark buildings loomed around the railway, black windows staring at him. Cassonan's hands tickled. They were clean, as were his clothes. Every speck of dirt was gone. His felt was tender and red, like he had just been to the sauna. The train slowed down at last, coming to a stop in the dark mouth of the station, and Cassonan was in the city. The city was a forest of metal and concrete, and metal that breathed and hummed. The air smelt of ozone. The facades of the buildings around the railway station square looked almost like he remembered them, only subtly wrong. 
From the corner of his eye he could glimpse them moving, shifting in their sleep like stone-skinned animals. There were no signs of life apart from a cluster of pigeons hopping back and forth on the stairs looking at him. They had sapphire eyes. A bus stopped full of faceless people who looked like crash test dummies sitting unnaturally still. Kosonan decided not to get in and started to head across the square towards the main shopping street. He had to start the search for the spark somewhere. It will glow, Maria had said. You can't miss it. There was what looked like a car wreck in the parking lot. Lying on its side, hood crumpled like a discarded beer can, covered in white pigeon droppings. But when Kosonan walked past it, its engine roared and the hood popped open. A hissing bundle of tentacles snapped out, reaching for him. He managed to gain some speed before the car beast rolled onto its four wheels. There were narrow streets on the other side of the square, too narrow for it to follow. He ran, cold weight in his stomach, legs pumping. The crossbow beat painfully at his back in its strap and he struggled to get it over his head. The beast passed him arrogantly and turned around. Then it came straight at him. The tentacle spread out from its glowing engine mouth into a fan of serpents. Kasonan fumbled with a bolt, then loosed it at the thing. The crossbow kicked, but the arrow glanced off its windshield. It seemed to confuse it enough for Kasonan to jump aside. He dove, hit the pavement with a painful thump and rolled. Somebody help, Parkele! He swore with impotent rage and got up, panting, just as the beast backed off slowly, engine growling. He smelt burning rubber mixed with ozone. Maybe I can wrestle it, he thought, like a madman, spreading his arms, refusing to run again. One last poem in it. Something landed in front of the beast, wings fluttering. A pigeon. Both Kasonan and the car creature stared at it. It made a cooing sound. Then it exploded. The blast tore at his eardrums and the white fireball turned the world black for a second. Kasonan found himself on the ground again, ears ringing, lying painfully on top of his backpack. The car beast was a burning wreck ten metres away, twisted beyond all recognition. There was another pigeon next to him, picking up what looked like bits of metal. It lifted its head and looked at him, flames reflecting from its tiny sapphire eyes. Then it took flight, leaving a tiny white dropping behind. The main shopping street was empty. Kasona moved carefully in case there were more of the car creatures around, staying close to narrow alleys and doorways. The firewall light was dimmer between the buildings, and strange lights danced in the windows. Kasonan realised he was starving. He hadn't eaten since noon, and the journey and the fight had taken their toll. He found an empty cafe in a street corner that seemed safe, set up his small travel cooker on the table and boiled some water. The supplies he had been able to bring consisted mainly of canned soup and dried elk meat, but his growling stomach was not fussy. The smell of food made him careless. "'This is my place,' said a voice. Kasonan leapt up, startled, reaching for the crossbow. There was a stooped, trollish figure at the door, dressed in rags. His face shone with sweat and dirt, framed by matted hair and beard. His porous skin was full of tiny sapphire growths, like potmarks. Kasonan had thought living in the woods had made him immune to human odours, but the stranger carried a bitter stench of sweat and stale booze that made him want to retch. The stranger walked in and sat down at a table opposite Kasonan. "'But that's all right,' he said amicably. "'Don't get many visitors these days. Have to be neighbourly. Satana, is that blabland suit you've got?' "'You're welcome to some,' Kasonan said warily. He'd met some of the other stayers over the years, but usually avoided them. They all had their own reasons for not going up and not much in common.' "'Thanks. That's nobly indeed. I'm Pera, by the way.' The troll held out his hand. Kasonan shook it gingerly, feeling strange, jagged things under Pera's skin. It was like squeezing a glove filled with powdered glass. "'Kasonan, so you live here?' "'Oh, not here. In the centre. I come here to steal from the buildings. But they've become really smart and stingy. 
Can't even find soup anymore. The stockman department store almost ate me yesterday. It's not an easy life here, Perra shook his head, but better than outside. There was a sly look in his eyes. Are you staying because you want to, wondered Kasonan, or because the firewall won't let you out any more? Not afraid of the plague gods, then, he asked aloud. He passed Perra one of the heated soup tins. The city stair slurped it down with one gulp, smell of minestrone mingling with the other odours. Oh, you don't have to be afraid of them any more. They're all dead. Kasonan looked at Perra, startled. How do you know? The pigeons told me. The pigeons? Perra took something from the pocket of his ragged coat carefully. It was a pigeon. It had a sapphire beak and eyes and a trace of blue in its feathers. It struggled in Perra's grip, wings fluttering. My little buddies, Perra said. I think you've already met them. Yes, Kasonan said. Did you send the one that blew up the car thing? You have to help a neighbour out, don't you? Don't mention it. The soup was good. What did they say about the plague gods? Perra grinned a gap-toothed grin. When the gods got locked up here, they started fighting. Not enough power to go around, you see. So one of them had to be the top dog, like in Highlander. The pigeons showed me pictures sometimes. Bloody stuff. Explosions, nanites eating men. But finally, they were all gone. Every last one. My playground now. So Essa is gone too. Kasonan was surprised how sharp the feeling of loss was, even now. Better like this, he swallowed. Let's get the job done first, no time to mourn. Let's think about it when we get home. Write a poem about it and tell Maria. All right, Kasona said, I'm hunting too. Do you think your buddies could find it? Something that glows. If you help me, I'll give you all the soup I've got and help me. And I'll bring more later. How does that sound? Pigeons can find anything, said Pera, licking his lips. The pigeon man walked through the city labyrinth like his living room, accompanied by a cloud of the chimera birds, Every now and then one of them would land on his shoulder and touch his ear with his beak as if to whisper. Bit of hurry, Perra said. At night it's not too bad, but during the day the houses get younger and start thinking. Gasonan had lost all sense of direction. The map of the city was different from the last time he'd been here in the old human days. His best guess was that they were getting somewhere close to the cathedral in the old town, but he couldn't be sure. Navigating the changed streets felt like walking through the veins of some giant animal convoluted and labyrinthine. Some buildings were enclosed in what looked like black film, rippling like oil. Some had grown together, organic-looking structures of brick and concrete, blocking streets and making the ground uneven. We're not far, Perra said. They've seen it, glowing like a pumpkin lantern, they say, he giggled. The amber light of the firewall grew brighter as they walked. It was hotter, too, and Kasonan was forced to discard his old pujanma sweater. They passed an office building that had become a sleeping face, a genderless Easter Island countenance. There was more life in this part of the town, too. Sapphire-eyed animals, sleek cats looking at them from windowsills. Kasona saw a fox crossing the street. It gave them one bright look and vanished down a sewer hole. Then they turned a corner where faceless men wearing fashion from ten years ago danced in a shop window and saw the cathedral. It had grown to gargantuan size, dwarfing every other building around it. It was an anthill of dark red brick and hexagonal doorways. It buzzed with life. Cats with sapphire claws clung to its walls like sleek gargoyles. Thick pigeon flocks fluttered around its towers. Packs of azure-tailed rats ran in and out of open massive doors like armies on a mission, and there were insects everywhere, filling the air with a drill-like buzzing sound, moving in dense black clouds like a giant's black breath. Oh, Juma Lauta, Kasonan said. That's where it fell. Actually, no, I was just supposed to bring you here, Paris said. What? Sorry, I lied. It was like in Highlander. There is one of them left, and he wants to meet you. 
Gersonin stared at Perrod, dumbfounded. The pigeons landed on the other man's shoulders and arms like a grey fluttering cloak. They seized his rags and hair and skin with sharp claws. Wings started beating furiously. As Gersonin stared, Perra rose to the air. No hard feelings. I just had a better deal from him. Thanks for the soup, he shouted. In a moment, Perra was a black scrap of cloth in the sky. The earth shook. Gersonin fell to his knees. The window eyes that lined the street lit up full of bright, malevolent light. He tried to run. He didn't make it far before they came. The fingers of the city, the pigeons, the insects, the buzzing swarm that covered him. A dozen chimera rats clung to his skull and he could feel the humming of their flywheel hearts. Something sharp bit through the bone. The pain grew like a forest fire and Kasonan screamed. The city spoke. Its voice was like a thunderstorm. Words made from shaking of the earth and the size of buildings. Slow words squeezed from stone. Dad the city said. The pain was gone. Kosonan heard the gentle sound of waves and felt a warm wind on his face. He opened his eyes. Hi, Dad, Essa said. They sat on a summer-house pier, wrapped in towels, skin flushed from the sauna. It was evening with a hint of chill in the air. Finish summer's gentle reminder that things were not forever. The sun hovered above the blue-tinted treetops. The lake surface was calm, full of liquid reflections. I thought, Essa said, that you'd like it here. Nessa was just like Kasona remembered him. A pale, skinny kid, ribs showing, long arms folded across his knees, stringy wet hair hanging on his forehead. But his eyes were the eyes of a city, dark orbs of metal and stone. I do, Kasona said, but I can't stay. Why not? There is something I need to do. We haven't seen each other in ages. The sauna's warm. I've got some beer cooling in a lake. Why the rush? I should be afraid of you, Kasona said. You killed people before they put you here. You don't know what it's like, Essa said. The plague does everything you want. It gives you things you don't even know you want. It turns the world soft. And sometimes it tears it apart for you. You think a thought and things break. You can't help it. The boy closed his eyes. You want things too. I know you do. That's why you're here, isn't it? You want your precious words back. Kasonan said nothing. Mom's errand, boy. <laughs> Vitu. So they fixed your brain, flushed the booze out. So you can write again? Does it feel good? For a moment there, I thought you came here for me. But that's not the way it ever worked, was it? I didn't know. I can see the inside of your head, you know, Essa said. I've got my fingers inside your skull. One thought, and my bugs will eat you, bring you here for good. Quality time forever. What do you say to that? And there it was, the old guilt. We worried about you every second after you were born, Kasonan said. We only wanted the best for you. It had seemed so natural how the boy played with his machine that made other machines, how things started changing shape when he thought at them, how Essa smiled when he showed Kasonan the talking starfish that the machine had made. And then I had one bad day, I remember, Kasonan said. He'd been home late as usual. Essa had been a diamond tree growing in his room. There were starfish everywhere, eating the walls and the floor, making more of themselves. And that was only the beginning. So, so go ahead. Bring me here. It's your turn to make me into what you want, or end it all. I deserve it. Essa laughed softly. And why would I do that to an old man? He sighed. You know, I'm old too. Let me show you. He touched Kasonan's shoulder gently, and Kasonan was the city. His skin was stone and concrete. 
pores full of the god plague. The streets and buildings were his face, changing and shifting with every thought and emotion. His nervous system was diamond and optic fibre. His hands were chimera animals. The firewall was all around him, in the sky and in the cold bedrock, insubstantial but adamantine, squeezing from every side, cutting off energy, making sure he could not think fast, but he could still dream, weave words and images into threads, make worlds out of the memories he had and the memories of the smaller gods he had eaten to become the city. He sang his dreams in radio waves, not caring if the firewall let them through or not, louder and louder. Here, Essa said from far away, have a beer. Cassonum felt a chilly bottle in his hand and drank. The dream beer was strong and real. The malt taste brought him back. He took a deep breath, letting the fake summer evening wash away the city. Is that why you brought me here? To show me that, he asked. Well, no, Essa said, laughing. His stone eyes looked young suddenly. I just wanted you to meet my girlfriend. The quantum girl had golden hair and eyes of light. She wore many faces at once, like a Hindu goddess. She walked to the pier with dainty steps. Essa's summerland showed its cracks around her. There were fracture lines in her skin, with otherworldly colours peeking out. This is Sada, Essa said. She looked at Gersonen and spoke a bubble of words, a superposition, all possible greetings at once. Nice to meet you, Gersonen said. They did something right when they made her, up there, said Essa. She lives in many worlds at once, thinks in cubits, and this is the world where she wants to be. With me, he touched her shoulder gently. She heard my songs and ran away. Maria said she fell, Gersonen said that something was broken. She said what they wanted her to say. They don't like it when things don't go according to plan. Sada made a sound, like the chime of a glass bell. The firewall keeps squeezing us, Essa said. That's how it was made. Make things go slower and slower here until we die. Sada doesn't fit in here. This place is too small, so you will take her back home before it's too late. He smiled. I'd rather you do it than anyone else. That's not fair, Kersonen said. He squinted at Sada. She was too bright to look at. But what can I do? I'm just a slab of meat. Meat and words. The thought was like a pine cone, rough in his grip, but with a seed of something in it. I think there's a poem in you two, he said. Kersonen sat on the train again, watching the city stream past. It was early morning. The sunrise gave the city new hues, purple shadows and gold, ember colours. Fatigue pulsed in his temples. His body ached. The words of a poem weighed down on his mind. Above the dome of the firewall he could see a giant diamond starfish, a drone of the sky people, watching like an outstretched hand. They came to see what happened, he thought. They'll find out. This time he embraced the firewall like a friend, and its tingling brightness washed over him, and deep within the stern-voiced watchman came again. It said nothing this time, but he could feel its presence scrutinising, seeking things that did not belong in the outside world. Kosonen gave it everything— the first moment when he knew he had put something real on paper. The disappointment when he realised that a poet was not much in a small country. Piles of cheaply printed copies of his first collection gathering dust in little bookshops. The jealousy he had felt when Maria gave birth to Essa. What a pale shadow of that giving birth to words was. The tracks of the elk in the snow and the look in its eyes when it died. He felt the watchman step aside, satisfied. Then he was through. The train emerged into the real, undiluted dawn. He looked back at the city and saw fire raining from the starfish. Pillars of light cut through the city in geometric patterns too bright to look at, leaving only white-hot plasma in their wake. Kersonen closed his eyes and held on to the poem as the city burnt. Kersonen planted the nanoseed in the woods. 
He dug a deep hole in a half-frozen peat with his bare hands under an old tree stump. He sat down, took off his cap, dug out his notebook and started reading. The pencil-scrawled words glowed bright in his mind, and after a while he didn't need to look at them anymore. The poem rose from the words like a titanic creature from an ocean, first showing just a small extremity, but then soaring upwards in a spray of glossolalia, mountain-like. It was a stream of hissing words and phonemes, an endless spell that tore at his throat, and with it came the quantum information from the microtubules of his neurons, where the bright-eyed girl now lived, and jagged impulses from synapses where his son was hiding. The poem swelled into a roar. He continued until his voice was a hiss. Only the nanoseed could hear, but that was enough. Something stirred under the peat. When the poem finally ended, it was evening. Kosonan opened his eyes. The first thing he saw were the sapphire antlers sparkling in the last rays of the sun. Two young elk looked at him. One was smaller, more delicate, and its large brown eyes held a hint of sunlight. The other was young and skinny, but wore its budding antlers with pride. It held Kasonan's gaze, and in its eyes he saw shadows of the city. Or reflections in a summer lake, perhaps. They turned around and ran into the woods, silent, fleet-footed and free. Kasonan was opening the cellar door when the rain came back. It was barely a shower this time. The droplets formed Maria's face in the air. For a moment, he thought he saw her wink. Then the rain became a mist, and she was gone. He propped the door open. The squirrels stared at him from the trees, curiously. "'All yours, gentlemen,' Kasonan said. "'Should be enough for next winter. I don't need it any more.' Hotso and Kasonan left at noon, heading north. Kasonan's skis slid along easily in the thinning snow. The bear pulled a sledge loaded with equipment. When they were well away from the cabin, it stopped to sniff at a fresh trail. Elk, it growled. Otso is hungry. Kosonan shoot an elk. Need meat for the journey. Kosonan did not bring enough booze. Kosonan shook his head. I think I'm going to learn to fish, he said. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Hanus. And again, a big thank you to the Orion Publishing Group of London for allowing permission to get this up and running again. Al, what can I say, lad? Thank you so much indeed, thank you. So, we have our very own, for the 100th time, Amy H. Sturgis Ames! <laughs> Hello, my friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. In fact, the 100th looking back into genre history. I'm so glad to still be here <laughs> with Starship Sofa, and I have big plans for the next 100 segments. So stay tuned, watch, or listen to this space. What I'd like to do today is follow up on something I have been covering the last couple of segments, namely the rediscovered 1956 ballot for the Hugo Awards. Now, two segments ago, I talked about that rediscovery. And in the last segment, I focused on Lee Brackett, who became the first woman whose novel was a finalist for the Hugo Award. That was The Long Tomorrow. And we had lost that bit of history because we had lost the ballot for the 1956 Hugos. But we have rediscovered that, and I talked about Lee Brackett recently. Well, today I would like to talk about C.L. Moore, that's Catherine Lucille Moore, 
and her husband Henry Cutner, the writing duo whose novelette *Home There's No Returning* was also nominated for a 1956 Hugo Award, making C. L. Moore one of the first women nominated and、uh, the first woman nominated in the Best Novelette category. So I'd like to talk about C. L. Moore and Henry Cutner today. C. L. Moore, Catherine Lucille, was born in 1911 in Indianapolis, Indiana. She was chronically ill when she was young, so she spent most of her time reading, and most of that reading was literature of the fantastic. She went to college, but then the Great Depression happened, and so she left school to work as a secretary. And she began writing her first stories. Then, so her first stories appeared in pulp magazines in the 1930s, including two significant series that ran in Weird Tales. One of those series was about a roguish adventurer named Northwest Smith and his wanderings through the solar system. One of Moore's most famous and most reprinted works. Shamblow, which was published in 1933 in Weird Tales, is of this series. The other series is more of a fantasy series about a character known as Jarell, Jarell of Joyry, and she's one of the very first female lead characters in sword and sorcery fiction. So Moore is writing pulp work, but it's got a kind of literary bent. Let's go to Henry Cutner. He was born and he grew up in California. After his father died, his family lived in very straitened circumstances, real poverty. He began writing while working for his uncle's literary agency. His first sale was to yes, Weird Tales in early 1936, and it was called The Graveyard Rats. Okay, now here I need to pause and. Veer off for a moment to one subject I keep returning to again and again, and that is H.P. Lovecraft,、uh, the father of modern weird fiction,、uh, the literary Copernicus who turned the source of horror away from a human-centric point of view and out toward the cosmos. He's known for many things, and one of them is a voluminous correspondence. He wrote to established authors he admired. He replied to authors who were just starting out, who were anxious to get his feedback. He wrote letter after letter, and he could write a letter. He could write twenty, forty, sixty pages in a letter, and he developed through his correspondence something called the Lovecraft Circle, a group of authors who knew each other because they all corresponded with Lovecraft. And that just happens to be the case with C. L. Moore and Henry Cutner. Both of them were part of the Lovecraft circle before they ever knew each other. It was Lovecraft, in fact, who put them in touch. He sent Cutner some photographs of Salem and Marblehead、uh, because Cutner had been writing stories set in these places, and Well, he had never visited, and really didn't get the feel of them at all. And so Lovecraft was offering constructive criticism, saying, "Hey, if you want to set it in these towns, you might want to know something about it." So he would do things like create handwritten maps to show Cutner where things could or could not take place in a story. 
And then he also sent photographs so that Kuttner could visualize the setting of his story. Kuttner had requested this feedback and was very grateful for it. Lovecraft even drew houses and headstones from these towns for Kuttner so he could have authentic details to sprinkle in his stories. Well, so he was sharing these things with Kuttner, and he said, hey, when you're finished with them, please send these things on to another of my correspondents, uh, C.L. Moore. In fact, I think that you two have a lot in common. And so this was the first contact they ever had. And as it turned out, Kuttner and Moore had so much in common, they ended up getting married. Kuttner's work infused a kind of horror sensibility into science fiction. And some of the works he wrote were explicitly in Lovecraft's mythos. Of course, Lovecraft didn't use the term mythos, but it was the shared sandbox that Lovecraft essentially created and then opened up for other authors to play in. Now, Kuttner and Moore became more than just spouses and fellow science fiction writers. They became collaborators. They, their work was intense. They were fully compatible with each other. L. Sprague de Camp, who knew both of them well, stated that their collaboration was so seamless that after a story was completed, it was often impossible for either Moore or Kuttner to recall who had written what. According to de Camp, it was typical for either partner to break off from a story mid-sentence, leaving a half-finished page in the typewriter, and the other one would just pick up where the last had left off, and they would just work back and forth this way, alternating who was writing as many times as necessary until the story was complete. They were a good fit. He was more pulpy. She was more literary. His writing was more abstract. Uh, she was more focused on prose. They fit together very, very well. Some of their collaborations include The Twonky, uh, a man gets what appears to be a television, but it's actually an artifact from the future, and it has some sinister aspects. Uh, Mimsy were the Bora Groves, kind of similar to the Twonky, um, about artifacts from the future and effects that they have on children. The Iron Standard turns expectations upside down because astronauts land on a planet then discover that gold and precious gems aren't worth anything. But iron, iron is prized because iron is very scarce on this planet. So it's a, a funny twist. Housing problem, where a family of fairy folk move into a house, pay their rent with good luck, but the homeowner gets a bit too curious. What You Need, a mysterious shop story with a nice twist. It became an episode of The Twilight Zone. One of the stories they're most famous for is the 1946 novella Vintage Season, which is a story about uh, dark tourism. That is, these people from the future travel to great disasters, massacres, just to watch to watch the death, destruction, and mayhem, and the sheer self-indulgence and degeneracy and decadence 
of kind of having a taste for disaster and feeding it, using time travel this way in the most you know perverse and jaded kind of tourism. It's a very interesting, excellent work. You can also see the strong impact of World War II on that story and the kind of horror of how tragedy will seem to people in the future. I often assign Vintage Season when I am teaching courses on science fiction. I also teach a course on H.P. Lovecraft and his circle. And when I do, I recommend two standalone stories, one by Moore and one by Kuttner. For Moore, I recommend the story Black God's Kiss. It's got a strong influence of Lovecraft, sort of through the prism of Robert E. Howard and the sword and sorcery genre. It's, in fact, the very first story in her Jarell, Jarell of Joyry uh, series, with that female sword and sorcery protagonist that was originally published in 1934 in Weird Tales. And I recommend The Graveyard Rats by Henry Kuttner because it too shows this Lovecraftian flavor. It was published, as I've mentioned before, in 36 in Weird Tales. And it's set in Salem, Massachusetts. It's grave-robbing cemetery caretaker and a teeming horde of zombie-like rats. And let's just say it's perfect reading for October and Halloween season. But for our purposes here, the story that is most relevant is Home, There's No Returning, the novelette nominated for the 1956 Hugo Award. It was first published in a collection of Moore and Kuttner's work called No Boundaries in 1955, and it went on to appear in The Year's Greatest Science Fiction and Fantasy, the next year, edited by Judith Merrill. This story is about a future global war that becomes immensely complicated and what happens when humans put the strategy and the decisions in the metaphorical hands of a computer. It's very much worth reading if you can get your hands on it. Sadly, the amazing and intense collaboration between Moore and Kuttner was cut short Kuttner died of a heart attack when he was only 42 years old in 1958. Authors like Marion Zimmer Bradley and Roger Zelazny and Ray Bradbury and others have marked him as a, a clear influence. And Richard Matheson dedicated his 1954 novel, I Am Legend, to Kuttner. Moore went on to write some for television, and she went on to teach creative writing as well. But she didn't write much fiction after Kuttner's death. In 1981, she received two annual awards for her career in fantasy, the World Fantasy Award for Life Achievement and the Gandalf Grandmaster Award. She became the eighth and final Grandmaster of Fantasy, sponsored by the Swordsmen and Sorcerers Guild of America. She remained an active member of the Tom and Terry Pinkard Science Fiction Literary Salon and a frequent contributor to discussions with other members, such as Robert Block and Larry Niven, Norman Spinrad, Jerry Pornell, and A.E. Van Vogt. 
Later in the 1980s, the science fiction writers of America wanted to name her the very first female grand master of science fiction. But sadly, by that time, she was suffering badly from Alzheimer's, and her family thought that that would be more confusing and distressing to her than meaningful. So ultimately, that honor went to Andre Norton. It's possible you've read a more Kuttner collaboration without even knowing it. They wrote under several joint pseudonyms together, C.H. Liddell, Lawrence O'Donnell, and most usually, Lewis Paget. That was a combination of their mother's maiden names. It was as Lewis Paget that in 1943, they published the story Mimsy Were the Bora Groves. And in 2007, a film version called The Last Mimsy came out from New Line Cinema, starring Jolie Richardson, Timothy Hutton, Michael Clark Duncan, and Rain Wilson. So, what do we have here? We have a dynamic duo of science fiction, C.L. Moore and Henry Kuttner. And it's great to see their work recognized once again, thanks to the rediscovery of the 1956 Hugo Award ballot. And with that, my friends, I have concluded my 100th segment. How time flies when you're having fun, right? And I'm looking forward to hitting 101, so join me again soon as we take another look back into genre history. Thank you. There you go, Amy. Well, listen, I wish I was a lot fitter. (laughs) A lot fitter when I was chatting with you. A lot better when I was chatting with you last time. And just, it still still had a blast, to be quite honest. Just to find out a little bit more. But you didn't tell us, Amy, who was that person you first kissed. We all want to know now, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does your mother know? Eh? I bet she bloody doesn't. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> she, I was, when I was when I was planning all that, I was going to go all into that, you know, and then all into the mother-in-law, you know what I mean? Oh, Karen darling, eh? nice dress, eh? looking good, lass. I was going to do all that for your mother. But, oh, it's still on my chest, man, still on my chest. So that is show 519, a little Starship Echoes, but hey, just a fantastic, and I'm glad, you know, we can do this and we can play like Hanu's story, that never gets old, something like that, so well done Jeremy, just kind of out, because Jeremy didn't know I'd picked it, so he's come along with that story and thought, wow, since the last time I've just said that word, wow, there have had about 12 coughs, <laughs> I need to go and suck a fisherman's friend quickly. I know. Every time I get cold, man, I see, I see him. That's all it. Huh? The, the well's dry. I've got no other. I kind of keep on producing them jokes. <laughs> Here we go. <coughs> right. Oh, yeah, man. Got to get better. I'm at work tomorrow, you know. I took days off as well. So it's been however many days I've had off. They've been holidays. I've booked in. Lost them all, man. Bloody sick. Anyway. So, how do you support this show? Well, you go over to Perion and you kind of help there. We have now the serial going, which has just kicked off. The Silverberg one. We've got the Red Dwarf, which we've come to the end of season one, but it's all still there. And what else we got? Ad-free Starship Sova and ad-free Starship Echoes as well. So, support if we can. 
That would be very, very helpful. Until next week, just let's see it. Good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.